size of these concepts and then like the, the concepts themselves are huge but it's also like they're just massive like especially with the blockchain and the cryptocurrency it's just the scale of it is so big welcome to today's episode of intangible.tech join host dan proctor and jp dowdle as they bring a unique mix of technical business and legal knowledge to today's most pressing issues and look towards the future on where the world is headed. Intangible.tech helps you harness the unseen elements of technology to create a more impactful future. So uh, yeah, just to kind of kick this off, um, introduce ourselves here. Um, both of us grew up in good old uh, Muncie, Indiana. Uh, we grew up uh, swimming together, actually. I think we started swimming together at like four years old way back Four when yeah. yeah um local kind of swim clubs and stuff in the summer and that kind of kicked off and we went all the way through uh what high school together at uh muncie yeah. central made famous by the movie uh hoosiers if anybody has ever heard of that we're uh we're the team that if ultimately you it, <laughs> if you haven't heard of it pause the podcast immediately and go watch it <laughs> it is damn near canon in indiana Exactly. We're uh, we were the team that got beat in the the final <laughs> moments. So we uh, we apparently were the bad guy. But kind of interesting mix with that just shows kind of where we grew up in Muncie. Um, we were such a powerhouse with uh, auto manufacturing, and uh, the city was phenomenal at the time and uh, had enough money to really be a basketball powerhouse in a state that's known for basketball. Um, sadly, when Jay and I were going through school, though, uh, a lot of that money was really zapped away um, and was a really interesting place to grow up just because we had so many um, diverse backgrounds that we we're growing up with, um, especially at least for me, as I've gotten into the corporate world, going back and explaining to people how I grew up, um, definitely realized, OK, yeah, it was different than most people. Um, it's been interesting. But, uh, but yeah, so I know, Jay, uh, what are you doing now? What are you up to? So I'm an attorney out in Seattle. Uh, I do a wide variety of defense litigation. Uh, I specialize most in employment law. Um, been an attorney for over a year. Don't know how long. Uh, still scarred by the bar. But, uh, yeah, I moved out. Uh, to Seattle right after graduating uh, from Indiana, majored in business law from the esteemed Kelly School <laughs> of Business. Um, yeah, and I've been enjoying living out in Seattle ever since. Still managed to maintain the close personal friendship with my co-podcasting <laughs> host. Yeah, and I think this is the first year uh, I haven't made uh, trips out to Seattle for obvious yeah. reasons. Normally, I'm out there a couple times a year to to visit you and uh, take advantage of the Seattle locale. So, no, kind of just to do a little background on myself here as well, too. Um, basically, and JP's seen this firsthand, uh, you know, growing up, I mentioned swimming. Um, swimming for me was amazing, kept really focused on that, that I uh, got to start serving on a couple board of directors from uh, starting at 15, um, expanded to being on USA Swimming's board at 20 years old, um, elected to the floor by an Olympian. And I think as Jay saw it firsthand, swimming was my absolute passion. And uh, I definitely chased my passions. And <laughs> Where, where this emerges is my only other kind of passion that was just as much as swimming back then was uh, technology. And uh, kind of chasing that, Jay saw I was always hacking things in my basement. And um, I don't think anybody ever knew what I was up to at the time. Or people uh, who kind of saw what I was doing, they're just like, oh, yeah, that's just Dan being a nerd. Um, not knowing that the things I was doing was actually not a lot of people knew, period, what I was doing. <laughs> Um, but, uh, kind of taking that, like, uh, I went through G's digital leadership program, which was just a phenomenal experience inside of a big, uh, behemoth of a corporate structure, but solving really pressing problems for them. Um, went over to PNG and was leading, uh, the world's, uh, connected toothbrush. So the world's smartest toothbrush with an Alexa, 
um, built in, but also how a large company like that can start an IoT initiative. Um, so that's been some fun stuff. But basically, where Intangible Tech has really grown from is this mission to better help people understand technology. And it's as JP and I talk about many of these different topics here, there's such a divide right now between people's understanding of what's happening with technology and um, what are the legal ramifications there? What are the what are the ramifications really of any of this technology to society? And hopefully helping people become more clear of that. Um, so for me personally, um, you know, growing up here in Muncie, how very blue collar it was and manufacturing, it's people have this idea of a manufacturing product of being built. And that's where really that I've seen the United States as a whole focuses on that. And it's if you look at manufacturing from a software perspective, how do you start to shift education and get more people into these fields to build things? That instead of a assembly line of building car parts, you're now building components of these digital initiatives. And at least right now, most people don't even know how to peel the layers back to be able to see those different manufacturing areas. And that's really what we're trying to bring to the light here is really get more people inside of this. Um, but also just bring awareness to these big topics that are really going on in the world. And ultimately, how, how do you know more about it to uh, have more conversation about it? So to give a little background on how this podcast will work and why you are probably wondering, I am here. Um, so through many of the conversations Dan and I have had about Dan's interests and trying to explain these concepts to me so that we can have a coherent conversation between the two of us, we came up with this idea to have a podcast where essentially the same thing happens. Um, I am here to ask questions that you, the listener, might have. Uh, and I am going to try to work with Dan so I can get to a place where I understand it just as much as he does or as close as possible. And hopefully through that, you also will understand it and you also um, get the background information you need to be able to go out and use the information that we discussed in either your business or personal lives. So kind of with today's topic, and it's uh, it's definitely a big one and one that we could will most definitely talk about in future podcasts is cryptocurrency and blockchain, um, specifically looking at the, the digital yawn right now and what is its effect on um, really Bitcoin, US um, regulation around cryptocurrency, um, just ton and tons of ramification there. So I know, Jay, um, I can kind of a brief intro for me on kind of crypto and blockchain. Um, I started getting into it very early on. This would have been 2013 when I was still in college, but I started mining Litecoin. And uh, I wanted to build a, a big gaming computer at the time that was about a $3,000 gaming computer. And I figured out, hey, if I mine with this thing, I can pay for the computer itself. And what I started to do was optimize uh, GPUs at the time to mine uh, Litecoin. Uh, Litecoin was small enough that GPUs were still very efficient. And I figured out that I could buy older AMD hardware and actually hack that hardware to look as a higher skewed hardware to basically make my money go even further. And um, so using PayPal credit to pay for the desktop computer, um, I had six months to pay it off. I paid it off in two months using all the Litecoin. Now, where I'm kicking myself is that $3,000 in Litecoin that I sold to pay for my desktop computer would have been worth over $3 million at the end of 2017 had I just held on to it. Definitely something that I'm kicking myself, especially when that desktop is now collecting dust uh, here at my parents' house. Um, but ultimately, it got to teach me a lot of things. And I would say it, it definitely showed me, okay, now that I missed out on that opportunity, how do I not miss out on that opportunity again in the future? Is definitely something where this is a huge interest space of mine. How far behind the US is on technology? And you look at this with COVID, with a lot of these systems overloading, say with um, unemployment benefits and getting these other benefits. 
Um, these aren't legal issues and these aren't even bureaucracy problems as much as this is our fundamental architecture of our country that are overloaded. And you see that there. Um, but when you can also look at, say, 2017, um, when crypto blew up and what really scared me is for me, I had money in a centralized system. And because I lost access to that system, I ended up losing a significant amount of money inside of the crypto space because I couldn't actually access my funds. And it was through how I would view our traditional banking architecture. And when you look at things like SWIFT or ACH, inherently, this is legacy architecture that relies on technology that was put into place 40 years ago. And it can be very overloaded. And essentially, it means that your money, our US dollars, are locked into that system because they can't interoperate and they can't talk directly to these new systems of payment transactions. And that ultimately moves that the United States can't move as quickly. And I, I think you see this even in the, um, the markets where there was a breaker that was tripped. And that breaker was meant to be enacted that, okay, the stock and the market fluctuations are happening at such high pace. They actually had to stop them um, because the markets really weren't built for that. And I, I think if you looked at, at crypto and you look at people talk about its volatility a lot, why would you want to invest in something that is worth $1,000 today, but an hour later, it's now worth $200 more? or $200 less. And the reality is that's happening in real time. And imagine if our market and our marketplace actually happened in real time as well too, that if I transferred $100 to JP, that would have an impact on the price of something else on a underlying system because that's happening in real time. And that's what you're seeing with cryptocurrency and its volatility. It's because any trade between any human being or back-end business transaction is affecting that price in real time. In our current banking systems, the way that the technology is laid out, if I would send or deposit money into my bank account and then try and move that, that could be almost five days before that transaction would actually happen. And even then, it's not guaranteed that that same initial transaction I had would actually update in the books to see it in real time. It's something that I hear all the time with people, it's like, okay, it's a Bitcoin, it's a Ethereum, um, one of their smaller tokens, but where does that value actually coming from? And it, it's, it's really looking at, you know, crypto as a whole, if you look, it's meant to transfer money or it's meant to transfer other assets. When you look at the actual currency itself, it's really not meant to be a kind of asset value on its own. And, and what I mean there is that comparison there between shifting money. It's think about a, a best case scenario here of Amazon. So you're Amazon and you buy a gift card. When you buy that gift card and you put that into your Amazon account, you now have an Amazon balance of $100. And in that Amazon system, yes, you have $100, but it's basically like a $100 credit within that system. And it's valuable to you. That $100 is valuable because you can spend it on anything in Amazon's platform. And so that $100 then has that value. In crypto, it's really looking like, say you have Bitcoin, the value of that Bitcoin is what you can trade it into. So you can convert that Bitcoin to a dollar. You can convert that Bitcoin to um, a Chinese yuan. You can convert that to um, a Mexican peso, whatever you would want. It's just an intermediate layer, layer between that. And that's ultimately the value. So if you had one Bitcoin and, hey, somebody's willing to purchase that Bitcoin and give you, let's just say, the $20,000 in exchange for that Bitcoin, that Bitcoin could then be traded or used with that person for Mexican peso. And it allows them to lose essentially no money between there. 
And you can compare this back to other systems, say like a wire transfer. If I wanted to send my $20,000 USD and convert it to Mexican pesos, I would have to find a bank in Mexico or a bank somewhere else that has those pesos, accept the wire transfer, and then they dictate the exchange rate for pesos to me. So in that model, you would be finding somebody, maybe one bank would be willing to offer me, let's just say, I know this isn't the right conversion here, but 20,000 peso for 20,000 USD. That would be the ultimate scenario there. And if you would use another bank or another wire transfer, you may only get 15,000 peso because they control that conversion. So you lose, um, what, a good 25% of your US dollar value because you have to go through that intermediary. Crypto itself is that intermediary to go find another value of something that you want. Does that make sense? So in and of itself, any one Bitcoin has no value. And the only value assigned to it is what someone says it's worth. And so the way I understand it, it's essentially a deregulated currency in which the owners of Bitcoin determine its value. There is no institution backing it saying that it is worth this much. Is that essentially what I'm understanding? And also that it's also a thing in a sense in that that thing has been assigned value, but it's also valuable because of how it's used. Exactly. It's like a direct intermediary between one party who has it and one party who wants it. Exactly. I would say think of it in this way, in that example there where you'd be doing a wire transfer to a bank. Essentially, that bank, Bitcoin and any of these cryptos is an automated bank in that that bank will be it, it can transfer any of those assets automatically and that it, it essentially gives the power to anybody else who would want to put up whatever they would want to trade. And they use whatever that crypto is as that it is a universal token for asset transfer. Let's say, okay, different scenario. You want to buy a home in the UK and that home is sold in British pounds. So you need to pay as your US dollar. You need to convert that to pounds. What you could do is convert it to Bitcoin for whatever that value is, say you're putting in $100,000 of dollars, you buy five Bitcoin, you transfer those five Bitcoin to British pounds. And in that process, you keep the full value of whatever your USD was worth because somebody over in Britain also wanted Bitcoin, but they wanted to purchase that through British pounds. But where are the exchange rates set on this? Because I'm assuming that if you have, say, in your example, you're converting it to British pounds, someone there is going to say that a five Bitcoin are worth X amount of British pounds. And so is it based on the actual currency exchange rates or are these just users setting their own rates? Yeah, it, it would be exchange by exchange. So there's different opportunities there for people who are plugging into the Bitcoin network. What they, can, what they do is essentially put a, an open buy order book. So exactly how the stock market would work now if you wanted to trade stocks um, essentially would work the same thing where an exchange would say, okay, we have Bitcoin in the system. Now we're going to expose, here's all the people who want to transact Bitcoin. And then here are all the other people who want to buy said Bitcoin. And they come in to make sure that those Bitcoins um, get exchanged at those rates. But it's all entirely automated, just like a, um, let's say, a digital exchange like the NASDAQ or anywhere else where they would have an open buy book and order book. Um, that's what those exchanges maintain. And they use the Bitcoin protocol um, to ultimately create those order books. What's the Bitcoin protocol? Yeah. So the Bitcoin protocol, that is what is actually powering the network. 
So it's the actual network protocol that is, um, they would call it the general ledger there that's keeping tabs of where all the Bitcoins are moving at any given point. So that would actually be, that's where they talk about a single database for all money movement would be that those, yes, there's a only a finite amount of Bitcoin out there. And now you're associating whatever Bitcoin's in circulation to who actually owns that. And those exchanges then take place for changing where that one Bitcoin would actually belong and who's actually holding it and is in possession of it. But who's in charge of that? Um, it's all automated. So that is all built into an algorithm. And when I mentioned there, like how I was mining Litecoin, when you hear about mining, mining is what are all of the computers that are actually keeping that network afloat. Um, and that would be anybody. It could be you and me. It'd be anybody who would be hosting a Bitcoin node is what they call it or mining on it. Basically, what you're doing is using your computer to go through those transactions and make sure that that network is always up to date. So in a, in a sense, it's a self-supporting system. Exactly. Yep. And that, that exactly there is the power of blockchain, that that system is always working tr um, through pure algorithms. But there is no way in which a single user could go into that system and change anything because it is fully insular. So if you look at, say, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, a lot of other cryptocurrencies, they're called what they call uh, proof of work. And proof of work is they need mining that anybody can go in and be a miner. So you could have um, PNG or GE could be miners, but then Dan in his basement could be a miner. Um, you could look at governments could be miners. Um, if they're using Bitcoin to move money around or any organization, really, they would be a miner and they would be a part of that network. But at any point, they could pull out and the rest of the network would still be moving um, because other people are keeping it going. You don't actually mm -hmm. have to host that where you say like a, a Google for all of that information that you do. Google has to be hosting that server and they're paying all that money for that server to be happening. Bitcoin is instead giving that, that's where they call it decentralized because anybody can become a part of that network to keep it moving, even if like Google would turn off their server. Um, and that's where the decentralized bit comes from. Where I've been doing a lot of digging is really the, there's this concept of a 51% attack with any proof of work blockchain. And what that is, is if 51% of the power of mining lies with one person, they can then control what is actually getting written to that ledger. So this is what gets really scary. And this is what goes on to more what I wanted to talk about in this episode, which is the digital yawn. Um, so going back to what that attack is on say Ethereum or blockchain, if they own that blockchain, they can control what's called a double spend. So I understand the general concept that Bitcoin itself is only supported by the use of its users, or that's not a great way of saying it, but it, it does make sense that Bitcoin only exists if people use it. Now from that, there's the 51 problem, which is if one person has the capability to mine or just use 51%. To use. Okay, and to use. And because there is no one single person in charge of the ledger, because the ledger is stored via blockchain, then this is where I don't understand. How does the how does the fact that a user of fifty one percent of all available Bitcoin then have the ability to alter the blockchain itself. And let's make it simple. Let's say that there are only 10 Bitcoin in existence. And each one previously was owned by one person, so 10 people. All of a sudden, one of those 10 people 
let's call them China, buy four or buy five other Bitcoin. So they know now own 60% of the Bitcoin. Yep. That transaction was recorded in the blockchain. Now, how does China alter that transactional history? If you're looking at a network and where the 51% attack comes through, imagine just like a, a giant server platform. If they're all focused on mining a, a Bitcoin, because they have more computing power, they can essentially overpower anybody else who's trying to um, not be a part of that 51%. So as long as they're holding the majority there, they hold enough power to control what's actually on the ledger. How, how though, because is the ledger itself not just an automated process? I know I'm probably overgeneralizing, but to me, it seems like as soon as you buy or use Bitcoin, yep. it is recorded in Bitcoin's own blockchain. Yep. Okay, but if I now own 51% of all Bitcoin, how then do I control, like what, what physically am I doing or what physically do I have to do to then assert my computing power to alter that blockchain? Yeah, it, it really is just having it, it's, it's spinning up the computing resources needed to have that ultimate control. Um, and kind of a, a way that I would visualize it would be, um, let's imagine like uh, two trucks trying to pull each other and you have both trucks, you know, hooked up with a chain. And let's say you have Musk's cyber truck on one side, you have a big Ford F-150 on the other. And ultimately Musk's truck, because of all of its electric torque, it's going to start pulling faster than that Ford. Um, that unless you started to hook up a more powerful truck to that other side, um, it's not going to be able to actually start pulling back in the direction of where that the other network is saying, basically because it is just so powerful, it can write to the ledger faster and than any, any other part of the network can. So basically what it would be doing is centralizing the Bitcoin network. Just again, like how Google controls any Google experience that we see because they actually own the server and they own the network behind it. Bitcoin, when somebody would have a 51% attack, they own that network and they, they own what's ultimately being written to the network. And let's say in an attack like this, it's not that they would be taking Bitcoin away from other people. It's that they would be taking the Bitcoin um, they would be disassociating it from, say, another currency. And that's where it becomes scary because, again, they're in control of this database. So they're not removing Bitcoin from circulation. But what they're doing is they're associating that Bitcoin to something else. And that devalues then what Bitcoin would be. So let's say How are they yeah. associating it with something else. Yeah. So let's say, um, you know, let, let's use this scenario and something that would be scary. Say it would be the Chinese entity and the Chinese decide to spin up and say, we're going to own the Bitcoin network. And what they would have is anybody who would be tied in through, say, Bitcoin that they're holding, but they want to withdraw that for, say, digital yawn is now they can um, basically those people could trade those Bitcoin and get their value in digital yawn, but those people still hold their Bitcoin. So then their Bitcoin is still on the network. So then say they do wanna trade it for USD. Well, now there's a higher amount of Bitcoin available in the world. And because most of those people have cashed them out inside of digital yawn, that means most of that value that was in there with Bitcoin has now transferred to yawn but that Bitcoin is now back on the Bitcoin network. So it's a double spend. So now you have essentially any you know, Chinese person or entity, they have all these extra Bitcoin, 
but they have now cut off transferring Bitcoin into digital yuan, which means now Bitcoin can only interact with USD or any other thing, any other assets on the Bitcoin network. So are they in this scenario, are they selling it to themselves essentially? Exactly. That, that would be exactly it. So they're selling Bitcoin or yeah, they're selling Bitcoin that they own to themselves for their digital currency. And then they're, because they're selling it to themselves, they're keeping that Bitcoin. Exactly. In the same scenario here of like how I used Amazon as an example there with your gift card balance, it would be as if you are going, you put your $100 into your Amazon gift card balance, and that is a digital credit. Amazon mm -hmm. holds on to that digital credit because Amazon is the protocol. They have the centralized system for that. Um, but then what if, okay, what if you purchase that $100 that you spend that $100 on buying a new video game or whatever it may be, but even after you purchase it and receive that asset, you still have that $100 credit in your Amazon balance. That makes sense. So now you, would you, yeah. So you have it, you have it because you now have compromised Amazon's system. So you can just say what you have. Exactly. The sheer computing power to assert control over something that should in theory be like ultimately deregulated in that its only use is through its users by then flipping that to where one person now has majority control it in a, in a sense becomes that person's thing and so that person has ultimate decision making ability over anything that happens because they now essentially own it. Exactly. They can do whatever they want in terms of, well, I don't, well, could they, could they make it more valuable or is it essentially a, a way of completely stripping value? Yeah. So that, that is interesting. And that's something I've been spending a lot of time on doing some historical research here. And it's, how Bitcoin is often compared to, to gold um, and, and why I'm making this segue here. Hopefully it'll make sense in a few minutes. But gold, ultimately, if you look, has always been a reserve standard for people that if you want to put your U.S. dollars into something that's going to have value buy gold, have the gold sit there and then you can always trade it back to something else because gold has that value. Right. Um, but where I would say even looking at gold and where, where this debate here with gold and Bitcoin comes in is if you look at gold now, what value does gold actually give somebody when most business is now digital? Like if you had a gold bar and you wanted to purchase some, purchase something on Amazon, how do you do that? Like what, what good is your gold bar on Amazon? It's, it's essentially useless because you can't actually transact with that gold bar. So inherently, it really doesn't have a lot of value in this digital world. Um, yes, you may be able to put your, you know, transfer your money into that. But ultimately, it's still going to be sitting there as a gold bar. It, it doesn't really have any real world usage at this point. It doesn't have immediate value. Exactly. But ultimately, you're still going to have to trade that gold bar into something else to actually transact. Um, yeah. So that is where the comparison is very um, deep there in terms of Bitcoin and gold, because you do still have to transfer it to something else for it to be useful. But, uh, you know, imagine if somebody did control the gold stockpile and looking back to history now, um, you know, there is a, a great quote by um, Herbert Hoover um, that in 1933, again, imagine Great Depression going on. We have gold because we cannot trust governments. And, you know, ultimately where, where he was looking at that was, you know, you have gold there and that your government currency could collapse. But ultimately, if you have your gold there, you, there's still going to have some value that's attached to it. 
And if you look at what they did, and there's the executive act of uh, or order there of 6102, and it banned gold holding for U.S. citizens. And what it did is it prevented the United States from having a non-dollar based currency. Like it prevented people from basically exchanging gold bars in the streets as an asset value because the dollar was so weak at the time. Um, but it also drove up the price of the world's second most valuable asset, which was gold. And the U.S. was able to increase the value of the dollar by ultimately having um, other foreign countries trade their gold for U.S. Treasury certificates. And other governments were willing to do this because they knew that there is more potential upside there by investing in the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy at the time, being a world leader, um, that they were willing to give up the sec their gold, knowing that it would go into our currency. Now, contrast this to now, the U.S., we don't have that economic status that we did in the 30s and especially post-World War. Yes, gold still has value, but what was really happening during that time? Um, so this is how I bring it back there to your point, Jay double spend, you would essentially be like gold out of thin air. Or what if China was buying a bunch of gold bars with US dollars? Because we have, we're not a gold based or a gold backed currency. The currency itself is backed by the government. And just like how foreign governments were willing to invest essentially in the likely economic prosperity of the country moving forward, gold didn't necessarily have the value. It wasn't the ultimate valuable asset. It was the US dollar. But now gold itself is separate from the dollar because of that, that action. Actually, Nixon, who removed us from the, the dollar back standard, it's mainly, the main point that I want to make there, though, is that we used gold as a way for other people to invest in us. And by these foreign governments giving us their gold bars, they received U.S. dollars in return. Those U.S. dollars were worth much more than gold at that particular time. So they knew that those dollars had much more upside um, in that scenario. Now, when we bring this back to the scenario here with Bitcoin and where this double spin comes, what the analogy is here with gold would be, imagine um, the US, this is flipped, that the US, if we view that our currency is weakening, we are putting all of our money into gold bars. And we're giving in those gold bars, though, are a decentralized system is what you're putting in your money into. So, yes, those gold bars have value and they have more value than gold because they can actually be used for asset transfer immediately. However, somebody could take over that entire gold pile. And that is what I'm saying here with a 51% attack. If they would take over that gold pile, what they could do is transfer that gold pile into whatever they want that currency to be without that gold pile actually shrinking. So now that gold pile, its value is less because people who cashed out of it already cashed out for its main value and whatever currency they wanted it to be. And now they have those other gold bars back on that market. So those gold bars, because they are no longer tied to that one currency that was just cashed out, they inherently lose the value of what they were purchased for. So what I'm struggling with is how then does it make sense to me that if I have a bunch of shit and I sell it for something and then I turn around 
and use that to convert into another currency, the person who just sold it to me in currency A suddenly loses currency A's value because now it's just been used for currency B. But how then do I still have all that stuff? Yeah. So it, it that that is where controlling the network comes in. So whoever that person controlling that network would be, they're the person who are essentially duplicating their gold bars. So they're they're oh. taking yeah. So they're taking their gold bars and they're trading them to any other asset. Okay. Wait. I think I got it. So it's essentially if you control, we'll use the gold example. It's essentially if you control fifty one percent of the gold you're in essence, you've just taken over control of a mine where you can get more gold. And so you now have 51% of the gold, but you can turn around and sell that gold for something, but also just go down and get more gold. Yep. Thereby making gold kind of useless. Exactly. And that, because you're self-inflating it. Exactly. And that that's where the my cause for security comes with any of these proof of work blockchains, including Ethereum, is, is that when you if somebody took over and they have that now pile that they're sitting on, and let's just say they have, I think there's roughly 21 million Bitcoin that are possible in the world. I think maybe 16 million are mined right now. Let's say they own that entire pile of 16 million. And let's just say out of those 16 million, they own, because again, it's computing power. It's not just how much you actually own. So it's not, you, you could own 99% of all of the Bitcoin in the world, but unless you're actually processing that and you have the mining behind there, um, you still don't own the network. Uh, back up. Because I thought you said that if you own a majority of it, then you essentially control it. Are you saying that it's, it, are you saying that you would never own 51% unless you had the capability? Like you, you may have, yeah, you may have 99% of all the gold ball, uh, gold bars in the vault, but the yeah. vault is not under your control because the vaults only control is coming from the decentralized network powering it. So the vault, if there was 51% of people powering the network, they then own the vault and everything that's in the vault. So anything that would then leave the vault that would go in and, in and out of the vault, they would have control of what would go in and out of it. You may still have your gold bars in the vault but in order to get those gold bars in or out, you would have to go through that vault. Okay, so let's use an example. In theory, there are 100 Bitcoin. Yep. And there are 100 computers or users. If one of those computers owns 99 Bitcoin, then they don't really control the network because there are still a hundred different people using the Bitcoin. But if one person controls 51 computers, they then own the network and have the force to then get all the Bitcoin. Um, right? To an extent. So it's really more that they control what would be on their ledger. So in that same example, if somebody... In this case, 99% of Bitcoin is locked up into any other account. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would only be that 1% of people. They take over the 51 computers, so they control the network, but they can only double spend on their um, 1%, 1%. Okay, so got it. So that means that in that scenario, if one person owns 99 Bitcoin and just sits on it, the 51% of computers can just continually spend that one Bitcoin they have until it's worthless, essentially, thereby devaluing all other Bitcoin, even though one guy owns all of it. Exactly. Because if you would say in that one scenario, what if that 1% of the, the Bitcoin there, 
you wanted to, um, you know, transfer to another asset. Well, because mm -hmm. you're controlling, you know, you can basically then dictate the price for your 1% um, cause that would be the only bit that would be moving at that point. Yeah. Um, because you completely locked out the in and out. Now I think a more familiar scenario though, would be like, okay, let's say 50% of Bitcoin, or let's even say 80% of Bitcoin is held in China. Um, they're holding on to those Bitcoin, whether those are citizens or an actual government entity, that's a ton of Bitcoin. Now, if they would then take over that network, again, they're controlling the in and out, they would, they would still have all of their Bitcoin, but they would move those Bitcoin and transfer it and spend them. So they would spend those Bitcoin on another asset. And that, so that asset then would be tied back to whatever those Bitcoin values were um, at the time. And then when they would then let the rest of the network take over said network, other people would still have their Bitcoins, but they would still have their Bitcoins too. Because they control the record, they would just be showing that their Bitcoin never actually went to whatever asset they moved it into, that it's still there on the network. So... What you're seeing there would be devaluing then because they may have just moved. Um, I don't know. Let's just say like we're right now, I, I don't know what the market cap is, but if you look at the value of being around $200,000 USD, you know, if they just moved, say, 70% of the Bitcoin network into something else, that Bitcoin is now not worth $20,000 USD. It may be worth only $2,000 or a thousand dollars because there's just there's more of them in circulation um why, why though would anyone do this why um really it it's an economic attack um if you look at it from say the the united states scenario look at all the people who have put bitcoin from us dollars and you look at okay you use let's just say like chase bank and you moved $100,000 from Chase Bank into, let's say, Coinbase, and now you have that money inside of Coinbase, well, you use Coinbase to purchase that Bitcoin for whatever that dollar price of that Bitcoin was. So if that Bitcoin is now valued at, say, like $2,000, you're like, whoa, I just lost you know, $98,000. Okay, well, where did it disappear to? Where did those $98,000 disappear to? Because you can't go back and say, hey, Coinbase, I want refunded $100,000 into my Chase bank. Coinbase will turn around and it's like for them, they're like, well, look, you purchased this for $100,000 and you purchased this at this asset value. So now what you have is you essentially have anybody who invested from USD all of their investment just shrank. And where did that money go? That money was transferred to whatever that asset was from that attacker. So you're essentially, say if we're going with the China example, China would be able to inflate its own currency's value, not by doing anything itself to its currency, but just lowering everybody else's currency. Exactly. And that, that's where it then becomes scary that, okay, now their digital yuan is worth a lot. And, and that the yuan's value is now increased because it basically sucked out any other asset that was on that Bitcoin network. Um, mm -hmm. And if they would close off the digital yuan then, that there is no way to convert into it, um, then essentially that, that currency is not part of that Bitcoin protocol anymore. And you no longer have that um, asset value. So essentially what they'd be doing is, is literally sucking our economy dry um, through that 51% attack because they're attacking the actual vault that is holding that and allowing it to be spent within another currency. So if mm -hmm. you would look at this and it's like, okay, well, why would they want to increase the value of the yawn? Um, is just an article I was reading yesterday. It's like 44% of the world's digital transactions happen in China. 
well, if you want to be a business that's now working with China, you need to convert your money into yuan in order to transact with them. So mm-hmm. no matter what, you would have to have a way to convert your money into yuan to ultimately do any business with China. And China, being the manufacturing powerhouse they are and the number one economy in the world, well, they have the upper hand, just like the U.S. did back in the 30s. We had the upper hand at the time because we had the best economy in the world to get other people to, you know, buy into our system. Well, at this point, because the yuan is that system that you have to buy into, now we have to trade our USD into yuan using something else. Why can't you just use banks? It sounds like a great deal for banks. Because, like, maybe I'm misunderstanding the scope and breadth of Bitcoin, but it seems like to me it only represents a small fraction of what's actually going on. And while that may negatively impact the US dollar, I don't see it as that big and widespread to seriously impact it i mean it will negatively impact it but not so much so that like you and i will be fighting each other for bread next year i i think that's where you have to look at banks fundamentally though if we look back at like our earlier scenario there um but with the peso is ultimately for you to transfer usd you have to go through that bank and that bank though has to have those pesos under its scope of operations as well too. So what bank then would be willing to give out digital yuan for these transactions? At that point, it would be a Chinese bank or it would be a US bank that has those ties with China to ultimately be handing that over. But think from a bank's perspective even though, you know, they're gonna have to have overhead to for any exchange rate essentially that banks would be doing what a business would be doing yes and no so like let's look at a case here of um something in my domain of like g's supply chain and where we're looking at an example there you know g is a global company they ultimately transact in us dollars like that that is the currency for all of their transactions but if they're doing business in, say, Britain, they need to have their money in pound format. And ultimately, those pounds need to be converted back to USD for General Electric's ledger. But mm-hmm. for any of those pound transactions, then they have to use a bank in Britain to transfer those assets back to US dollar. So whatever Mm -hmm. bank they would partner with for any of those British transactions, they would ultimately have a pound balance that needs to get transferred to USD. Going Mm -hmm. through that bank, they may lose maybe 20% of that value in British pounds to the US dollar because just not enough people are wanting to trade um, British pounds to dollars at that moment. So their business in the UK just wouldn't be as strong compared to their dollar. But what if they had a unified global currency to be transacting in? And this kind of goes off topic a little bit, but this is now showing the, the value of a business having its own currency or even say a stable coin because that stable coin that you're transacting in could then be transferred directly into another asset. So I don't know if any of that makes sense here. It does, but the, I guess the issue that you see is that the alternative for GE in that situation would be to not go through a bank and just use Bitcoin. Exactly, like, like that is another perfect case of blockchain coming in. But to your point there of how are you trading who ultimately would be in charge of the conversion of digital yuan to US dollars for exchange? Like if I'm if I'm wanting to build a um, new Alexa toothbrush in China and have it built in Shenzhen, I have to pay 
money to those Shenzhen manufacturers for them to do business with me. And I have to do that in digital Leon that they don't accept. Why, why wouldn't, why couldn't you just contract and say that we'll pay you in dollars and it is your responsibility to transfer dollars into whatever you want. Yep. And that absolutely could be the case. But then the question arises of, are they going to do that? And if they can't, if they're over there in China and they're saying, hey, we're all on this digital yawn system and that's how everything's happening. Yes, you can pay us in U.S. dollars, but now you're going to have to pay us in 5x what we you know, normally would have been paying. So basically, if you could... If you could transact directly in digital yawn, your cost would be much lower than paying because that supplier, you may have to pay five times what the U.S. dollar cost is. But if you could find a way to just pay your U.S. dollar cost and transact directly in yawn, that may only be like 1.5 times the cost instead of five times the cost. Because now you're putting it on that supplier to convert dollars to yawn which inside of mainland China, what's the value of a dollar over there? Not much. Exactly. And that that is where there's significant impact here of what if the world goes away, if we've always used the dollar as the universal business language and the universal you know, way of payment for business, you know, now that becomes up in question um, just because of usage, like our, our dollar in its non-digital form, because it can't be transacted like this inherently isn't as valuable because you'd have to go through a traditional banking system to convert it. So it goes back to the gold bar. <clears throat> it goes back to the gold bar example where you can't use a gold bar to buy something on Amazon, but you can use the credit on Amazon. Exactly. It doesn't mean that the gold bar itself doesn't have value. It just doesn't have immediately recognized value. Exactly. You want it to have value. That's exactly it. And it, no, you actually, you just nailed it there. That, that's the exact comparison is in that scenario, you would be transferring your money, your US dollars to a gold bar, and then going from a gold bar to something else. There, there's always going to be that, you know, intermediate layer. And if you did find a bank that would do that transfer, they're going to value those gold bars differently. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be on a bank by bank basis. Now, what blockchain is doing is opening that up. So instead of just going between one bank, you could be going between all banks at the same time. So maybe the bank of Thailand, because they're also doing business with China, they would trade digital yawn for a better rate. Should we clarify the pod's position on Taiwan and one China to China policy? The US dollar is essentially the gold bar and the digital yuan is the Amazon credit. Yes. And the market is Amazon. So the inherent value of the yawn is that you can immediately buy stuff. Whereas the dollar, although it can be converted into Amazon credit, it takes time and it also loses value through that process. Exactly. And if you scale this up, that means that the yawn now has all of the value because it can be used faster and it's just more valuable than the dollar. It doesn't necessarily remove any value from the dollar. It just takes a lot away from it. And over time, people will stop using the dollar and exclusively start using the yawn. Exactly. Using the analogies to understand it because it's such it's so much more helpful because the size of these concepts and then like the the concepts themselves are huge, but it's also like 
they're just massive like especially with the blockchain and the cryptocurrency it's just the scale of it is so big that it helps to like break it down into those analogies well i gotta say all of this stuff is very interesting you've, you've actually finally taught me about it i've always kind of just operated in this world where i don't fully understand what is being talked about and just kind of like broadly faking my way through it but that, yeah it's really interesting yeah, no, it's incredibly interesting. Just to wrap up, um, no, I mean, looking at, you know, blockchain itself, as you've seen here, it's very, very complex. Um, but ultimately, what the way to look at it, and I, I think our Amazon store was perfect example there of, you know, you're converting your US dollars into something else that can actually be transacted. And when you're on side Quick. in quickly, yes. And if you look to the past, uh, especially the Bitcoin comparison with gold, it's no matter what our U.S. dollar is having to go through a conversion to actually get to a usable means of transferring value. And when you look at the digital yuan with, with them going forward, that's already a currency that can be transacted. Um, when you look at a 51 percent attack, you can see how that can start to be scary. Um, if somebody owns that power to essentially rewrite that network, um, they can convert those currencies into another digital native currency. And it, it allows the value to be sapped. And it's ultimately our legacy architecture and the way that our dollar works across these systems that is preventing us um, from moving forward and actually having something that compete with um, the digital um, UN. I actually looked it up. I think it's pronounced UN. So we've been saying that one wrong. Ultimately, I mean, it's, you know, we can definitely do some more episodes to, to dig into a lot of these topics deeper. Um, probably went too technical a bit there. But I think, Jay, to your point, those analogies, that's what's ultimately bringing this back. And uh, again, going into mm -hmm. Intangible Tech's mission here, it's how do we start to uncover those areas and put those in a way that makes sense to you, our listener, um, to hopefully have some more mm -hmm. conversation. <laughs> exactly so uh yeah so, i want to do one last final analogy to make sure that i've learned something today <laughs> so in our first analogy we had a gold bar or i had a gold bar dan had a hundred dollar credit on amazon my gold bar has no intrinsic value in amazon's marketplace because I can't just chuck a gold bar at my computer and get something from Amazon. While I can eventually convert it into Amazon credit, I will lose money or I will lose the value in my gold bar through that process. Now, extrapolating this out to the real world, China is now Amazon. China's market is what we want to transact in. Dan now owns a hundred yuan, uh, digital yuan, and I still own, or I have US dollars. The same problem still exists. To do business in China, Dan can do it much quicker because Dan can just spend his digital yuan, where I have to go through these different processes, whether it be a bank or some other method to convert my dollars into yuan. By doing that, the dollar's value is reduced. Exactly. Perfect, I learned something. Yeah. Look at this. <laughs> no, exactly. No and that's exactly where, um, you know, and where some risk comes in. I, I think if you talk to a lot of people you know, that with 51% attacks, um, a lot of nerds um, and a lot of people who really believe in these decentralized networks, um, they don't think it can happen because how can somebody possibly possess that much computing power to take that over? And, um, you know, it, it's something we can definitely look into more. There's definitely a lot of examples there of how that could actually happen. Um, yeah, that interesting that i love the, the cybersecurity aspect of it that i find that stuff incredibly interesting where because china definitely i mean they're an all-powerful government that can just direct its 
citizens or workers to do one thing if they want them to. Exactly. And when you talk about a decentralized network like this, the, the goal is that you would have kind of a global currency or you would have a global system in place to handle these interactions. But inherently, what is that system and do we trust mm -hmm. it? And, you know, Bitcoin has been around for a very long time and it, it is proving it, you know, its value there. But at the same time, what is the risk with that currency and ultimately that protocol being the main layer there? And uh, that's that's what we can dig into in more episodes. And so how about you conclude by giving us a brief little window into what we will be discussing next time? Yeah. So no, lo looking to next episodes here, um, I, I want to start tackling big tech. I want to start tackling, uh, you know, these different lawsuits, um, looking at Epic Games, looking at Fortnite. Um, you know, what are all of these things that are happening and going on around us and how is it shaping the technology landscape? Um, and ultimately, how are you in part and all of these transformations that are happening um, really at rapid pace because of COVID? Where are we taking the conversation from here? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we'll continue to explore this further. We'll, we'll continue to look at proof of stake blockchains, which is fundamentally a different technology um, that allows these to come to fruition. And we'll also mm -hmm. start to do deep dives into some of the other technologies and platforms that are bringing this to the future. Perfect. All of that sounds interesting, and I look forward to discussing that with you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Intangible.Tech. Please comment and review us in your podcast player of choice, and feel free to reach out to us at Intangible.Tech.